You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, let's jump into Hebrews uh, today, chapter 2. We're going to be in verse, verse, chapter 1, verses uh, 5 through chapter 2 through verse 4. If you don't have a Bible, just know you're welcome to grab one there in the back. They're yours to take home with you. Now, when I was in middle school, uh, and I probably tell a lot of middle school stories, mostly because I was really awkward in middle school, and it kind of it can be funny to, to reflect on your awkwardness. Um, when I was in middle school, I remember in eighth grade sitting at a, a table with a bunch of guys, and all that they talked about was girls and dating, right? And that completely lost on me. I wasn't even in that school of thought in eighth grade. I thought that I could win approval by how impressive I was in my impersonations of Beavis and Butthead. Like that's sort of where I was at in this day, right? It did not do for me what I hoped it would have done for me. But I had this really supremely strong desire in my life to fit in. Uh, I just wanted to be accepted. But here's the thing. I was a bit awkward. Right? And if you've been here long enough, around this church long enough, you know that that probably hasn't changed. Right? I enjoy when you don't laugh at jokes. Uh, I make up words. I mispronounce words. And then I pretend that they didn't happen. All right? <laughs> and so I'm okay with being awkward. But sometimes in efforts to fit in, um, we do things, we change ourselves, we change what we believe. We might even say different things to fit in. You might talk bad about somebody that you really like if it gets you noticed, or a group of people might laugh at your joke. You know, in middle school, we had a pool, and, and because we had a pool, we had swim class, which is almost criminal if you think about it, to make middle school kids with hormones in their bodies really uncomfortable and put them in swim class. And then in my day, essentially what you wore was a Speedo. That's why you guys who were in my age group and you went to Bluffton, you know exactly a black Speedo, right? And so how do you look cool walking out in middle school with a black Speedo on and you're just like, how can I keep this towel on me, right? I don't, and so it's just completely awkward. And so what do middle schoolers do when you're awkward and you're insecure? Well, you want to find somebody to blame for your awkwardness and insecurity. And so certainly that happened in our school. And the person that was pinpointed for all that awkwardness and all that insecurity was our swim teacher. And he was unrightfully labeled a pervert because he made us come into Speedos, because he wanted to look at us. And because of that, all the kids gave him a hard time. Now, I wanted to be cool. And so I wanted to fit in, desperately wanting to fit in. And because the cool kids did this, I wanted to do it too. The problem for me was that he was my swim coach. I was a swimmer throughout school. Uh, He taught me how to swim from when I was four. He was a friend. I liked him a lot. He was actually, he was a family friend, but because the cool kids were trying to do something, I tried to fit into. So I remember one day as class ended, 
uh, I was in the middle of the pool. I, I was floating. I was, yeah, I don't know what I was doing. And he gave some instructions that, hey, it's time to end. You guys need to get in. And so I rebelled. And I just sort of floated in the middle of the pool, making his job a little bit more difficult, which led to him repeatedly announcing to me and everybody else that it's time to get out of the pool. And so being, um, I don't know what words you want to describe me as in that moment, I wanted to obey slightly, and so I just slowly drifted to the side. And eventually I got close enough to the side for him to grab me by the arm, and he grabbed me by the arm in one of the most marking moments of my life. As he grabbed me by the arm, he pulled me out of the water, and at the same time, he said these words. He said, I would never have expected this from you, Stephen. I would never have expected this from you, Stephen. And it absolutely crushed my awkward, prepubescent soul. It just crushed me inside. It marked me to this day. And, and today, I'm, I'm embarrassed still when I think about that instance. I, I wanted to fit in. And I betrayed a person and I'd hurt a person who didn't deserve it. And I did it, I did it so I could gain something. I would never have expected this from you, Stephen. And in that moment, I think it ingrained in me that people matter, that character matters, that having good friends matters. And in that moment, I threw it all away to get something that I really wanted. And so I think, if you're honest, we all could share a story or two of a similar time where we've compromised something, or we betrayed a friend, or behaved unethically or unvirtuously to get something in the world, or to be noticed by a group of people. And so here's the question I want to start with today, a question that I want you to think about here. If you could fill in this blank, what I want most is to be. Think about that. What I want most is to be what? Is it to be needed? Is it to be known? Is it to be accepted? Is it simply to be safe? Is it to be powerful? Leave a legacy? Or maybe you just want to be loved. Uh, what I want most is to be loved. Whatever comes in your mind first, put it in there. What I brought in that pool today in, middle, in that day in middle school was a unhealthy need to be liked. And because it was the greatest desire of my heart, which there are times in this day that it finds itself into that blank, and I have to be careful, but because it was the strangest or the strongest desire in my heart, I was willing to compromise what was necessary to gain it. But in the end, I never got what I truly wanted. Probably because I just awkwardly ran into a wall at some point and everybody laughed at me and the credit that I'd built and my disobedience went away, right? And so I can't speak for you, uh, but I certainly know what's in me. I know the lacking that's in my heart. I know the brokenness that is in me. And I'm fully aware that our scripture makes a very supremely clear case that you and I both share that brokenness. That you and I live in a broken world, and in our sin, we choose ourselves over God repeatedly. And because of that, it brings all sorts of chaos and all sorts of dysfunction into our lives and into this world. And so because I know that, I know you, many of you, most of you, like me, struggle with the desire to compromise a bit of our integrity, a bit of our virtue, a bit of our relationships, a bit of our future, if an opportunity comes along where we can get what we truly desire most. Not are we only willing to compromise those things, 
But what we will learn today is if we are not careful, we will be willing to compromise our belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the sovereign King of the universe. And we will do it if the compromise is worth it. So as we enter into the book of Hebrews, what we have waiting for us in this book is the constant beat the author drums that says that wellness and wholeness in this life does not come from you getting what you want, but by fully elevating the Son of God into his right and meaningful position. Christ must be elevated higher and higher and higher, that ultimately what is necessary in our lives isn't us getting whatever it is that is in our blank, but in keeping Christ supremely elevated and positionally in charge, Lord of our life, that is what we want. Because what we want in this life, in this world, fails us compared to what we have in Jesus. C.S. Lewis, brilliant mind, quote him often. A famous quote that he has here, he says, aim at heaven and you will get the earth thrown in. Aim at the earth and you will get neither. One of the greatest deceptions our enemy has played in our world is to convince us that what we fundamentally need most in this life is found in the world. But it is the joyful reminder of the faithful of the believer that everything in this world is a shadow compared to the splendor and the glory of Christ. Yet we must be fully aware, fully aware of the current of the world and why it wants to convince us that that's not true. And so we're going to jump into Hebrews today, but first let us pray. Lord, we come before you today and I just, I praise you today. What a beautiful cry um, to hear us lifting up, Lord, our neediness. Lord, I need you. Just a, a co- beautiful cacophony uh, of an admittance of what's true. Lord, we need you. And Lord, we, we would just pray that you would help us in this moment to realize that fundamental need, but also that we need each other. And so, Lord, help us in our shortcomings. Forgive us where we sin, Lord. Restore your joy and gladness in our heart today. Use this word, this living word, to bring conviction and joy to us today. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. So Hebrews is this pastoral letter. We talked about unknown author. Uh, We don't really know. Some have lots of different opinions. It's written to a couple house churches in Rome about 35 years after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. And if we remember from last week, they are a group of people that are literally hard-pressed from virtually every single side. They're unwelcomed by the Roman culture of the day. They're disowned by their former relatives and families who are in Israel, people who were in the Jewish faith. These people are Christians. They've left that faith. They're disowned by their peers. Their claim that Jesus is Messiah has cost them virtually Everything. There is not a harbor in the world for them to find rest in. And so in this scene, in this moment, comes in some into these churches whom have found a way to, per se, thread the needle. They, they have found a way to thread the needle to find relief from the precarious situation that they're in in the culture that day and from those who they once called peers. There are those in the church in that day who are trying to compel to the others that Jesus wasn't Messiah, that all he was was simply an angel. Some divine prophet was an angelic being, but he was not the Messiah. He was certainly not God himself. 
And here's what that compromise would grant you. Now think about this. If you're in this situation, they would be accepted in their denouncement of Jesus as the son of God, in announcement that he's an angel. They would be accepted into Roman culture who is vastly okay with multiple different gods, worshiping different gods. Their problem with Israelites and Christians was the claim that they made that Yahweh, that Jesus was exclusive. Their problem was that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. But if they denounced that and they just said, well, he's an angel, they would be more than welcomed into the harbor of the Roman culture. But they also send, uh, mean that you can gain uh, the, the fellowship of their former peers, both in Jerusalem and in Rome. Because the leaders in the Jewish world in that day would be completely okay with you just esteeming Jesus as uh, uh, some prophet, uh, an angel, even a rabbi, just not the Messiah. That's blasphemy. And so if they just said he was an angel, then they would find comfort from their relatives. So in that claim to be angel, there is so much that they get. They get so much from it. Now imagine what it would be like for you. Imagine how enticing that offer would be. Granted this, right? Christians are just a few years away from being slaughtered in the Roman Colosseum by the emperor Nero. They are disowned by their relatives in this day. They are unable to access the temple, which would in that day be the whole of societal life. They are barred from that. And so they're on this ever-shrinking island. And this is a way out. Think about it. They can even hold on to Jesus. They can say that he's important, some element that, okay, I can still claim that Jesus is important in this life. So they get, they get it all. Like, I can keep Jesus, I get this, and I get this, and I get this. It's a very enticing offer. And so what the author of Hebrews, whom I believe is in a role like a pastor today, he writes to this congregation in their pressure by others who's, who want to change what we believe about Jesus. And he's essentially saying this, is that you think that you are going to gain so much by doing this. You think that you're going to gain so much, but little do you know that in compromising Jesus as the son of God, you will gain the earth, but you will miss out on heaven. You will gain what you want in this world, but you will lose your salvation. It will be at the cost of your salvation and the cost of the grace of God. And he gives us factual evidence that are rooted in the scripture on why Jesus cannot simply be an angel. And so here in verse five, the author of Hebrews says this. He says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the author is pulling from Psalm chapter 2, which is a very known messianic verse about the coming Messiah. It would be central to our understanding of who the Messiah was. And we remember, right, in our gospel in Matthew, when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, there is a voice that comes from heaven, and that voice declares this, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so this is a royal announcement. Think of this as a coronation, not son and begotten in, in the terms of reproduction. Why God says son? 
Why does God say begotten? It's not because God created the son. This isn't uh, our imagery of father, son in the world. What he is saying is that this is the son. This is an office. And he is begotten, not that he was created or God is his sire, but he is begotten in that he is essentially the same in nature and substance of God. The father and the son are the same, being in different roles, not the son subordinate or lesser or created. Now, there are groups of people There are groups of people that deny that Jesus existed pre-creation. They believe that Jesus is a created being by Jehovah God. A Jehovah witness might stop at your door someday, and they might take you to Hebrews chapter 1 to you, and they say, look, Jesus is not God. He was created by the one true God named Jehovah, and in fact, he is lesser than God. And they will say to you, look at these scriptures, Look at these scriptures. In Hebrews, it references him as the son. It says in verse six that we'll get to that he's the firstborn into the world. They mean that he's created. He's not God and he's certainly not a part of the Trinity. And then you will kindly remind them that this isn't a reproductive term. This is an office that Jesus was always going to be the son from the beginning of the world because the world is his. And he is firstborn because it shows that it is his by inheritance, that it reflects power and glory that all of things all and all of creation are Jesus Christ. And then you will flip to the gospel of John. And you will say, not only are you wrong that Jesus is not God, but Jesus Christ himself declares himself to be that stuff. He is God himself. He is quoted by saying, I am the, the name above all names. He says, I am God in John 8 and 58 and 59, being questioned by the Jewish leaders of that day about who he was. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up his stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What Jesus just did was to quote the Old Testament name for God. He is saying, I am who I am. And in the book of Exodus, before God delivers his people from Egypt, Moses, talking to the burning bush, says to him, who should I tell our people who, who should I tell him your name is? What is your name? And he says, I am who I am. I am who I am. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. And the leaders of that time knew it because they picked up stones and they tried to kill him. This was blasphemy. And then we look in the book of Revelation, right? This vision that John the disciple has in exile on the island of Patmos about the end of time. And in Revelation chapter one, it says this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death in Hades. John pronates himself on the floor. He is dead on the floor, blinded by the glory of the risen Savior who says about himself, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I am without creation. This is Jesus telling us that he is not to be mistaken as an angel, that he is the Son of God, and he's the rightful heir and the King of the cosmos. 
And the second truth that the author of Hebrews reminds his people of, his congregation, is that not only is Jesus an angel, but in fact, angels worship him. In verse 6, he says, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In our minds, go back to the birth of Jesus. As he is being born in the fields, the shepherds look up and what do they see? The heavenly host. And what are the heavenly hosts these angels doing? They're praising God. They're praising the Savior, Jesus. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to whom in whom he is well pleased. But more than just worshiping Jesus, what the author says in verse 7 is that the angels actually belong to him. He says, of of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And so the claim that Jesus is an angel cannot be true because you cannot be equal to somebody that worships you and who belongs to you. This is the truth of Jesus. The angels submit to him, the angels worship him, and they will continue to worship him throughout eternity. And so the author has quoted no less than four Old Testament scriptures about the Messiah in just these two verses. Uh, These were verses that were written before Christ was born about the Messiah, saying this is who the Messiah is. And he's saying to his congregation, look at Jesus, this is who he is. He's not making stuff up. What I so appreciate about the book of Hebrews is this isn't conjecture. It's not opinion. He is staying faithful to the scriptures and he's bringing it to the church in that day and he's saying, this is your Messiah. He is God. Don't compromise him to be anything else. And then from there, he proceeds to quote Psalm 45, Psalm 102, Psalm 110, Now remember, right, these people are not like us. They have an intense knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures to the likes that we don't fully understand. He is speaking their language. And what he is saying to them is, what angel do you think God would ever say this of? And he goes to these passages in Psalms, and he says this starting in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your comparison, companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you, will, you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make you your enemies a footstool for your feet? Whom else in scripture would God declare that your throne will be everlasting forever and ever? And even more incredible than that, who in scripture does God himself refer to as God? Because if we look at verse nine, this is the Trinity, the Godhead, speaking of one another. When he says in verse nine that you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God has anointed you. 
This is the Holy Trinity speaking about one another, of who the Messiah would be, God himself, the anointed one, the second person of the Trinity. And so here's a thought for you, right? Are we living in an age in which somebody's going to come up to you and pressure you to say, hey, all I want you to do, he's an angel, right? Jesus is an angel. Let me tell you why. Do we feel that sort of pressure today to, to admit Jesus as an angel? The answer is probably not. Uh, there's not a lot of angelic movements that I know of. There probably are somewhere on YouTube, and you can find them today, right? That's probably not our chief pressure today in, in changing a belief in Jesus, but we still face pressure in our life to change the status of who Jesus was. We still face a compromise today in the truth of who Jesus is and who he was. Uh, We face that compromise of getting a little bit more of what we want to be accepted, being loved, being safe, having power. Today, there is still pressure for us to change the truth of Jesus, to find those things. It just comes differently today in this world. Uh, We would find today a a very relevant audience if all we said was Jesus was just some great moral teacher. We would find a great reception in this world. Even the greatest atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins, says that Jesus would make a great moral structure. There is pressure for us today just to simply say that Jesus was a God, but not the God. We would find receptive audience to say, oh yeah, he's just a God, and everybody can worship whatever God that they want. We might find pressure to simply see Jesus as some sort of version of Mr. Rogers. This nice sort of grandpa figure that loves everybody and just, I just want you to be happy. That's, that's all I want from you kids. It's just for you to be happy, that everybody be healthy and wealthy that he supports us no matter what, that we can do whatever we want, that God loves us and he's on our side. Everyone is in. Everyone's in. You get it, you get it. We're all in, right? You'll find popularity in the world by that belief. And increasingly, because of the polarity of our culture, the division and unity in our culture, we will increasingly find receptive audiences if we make our God angrier if we make him angry, because an angry God serves to validate me that I'm right, and it gives me permission to see you as things and not image bearers. We face so many pressures today in our culture. Maybe not an angel, but pressure nonetheless. And so the case is pretty simple here, as the author puts it. Don't be deceived by the yahoos that are coming in and trying to convince you that Jesus is something other than the Son of God. Don't listen to them edify him as an angel or anything else. The scripture simply doesn't give us license to do that, nor do the words of Jesus. And the angels reveal to us that Jesus is the very center of creation, the most glorious object of worship for our lives. And so he says, be careful here. It will not serve you well. In fact, it will be for your doom and your demise. We pick this up in chapter two, starting in verse one. 
He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed among according to his will. And so the author says that we need to increasingly be deliberate in our intentions to guard our doctrine, to hold tight to what is true, to shore up a firmer foundation of truth. And this is a consistent thread within the New Testament message that you will find in most of the letters to the churches. They are warned as believers to keep an eye on their theology, to hold fast what is true, to keep building a firmer foundation, to pay attention, lest you drift away. And so what he means by drifting from faith is this, is that it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't come by all-out rejection, that there is a common current in this broken world that runs opposite the hope of Jesus, which means those of faith, we are fighting an uphill and upstream battle. It is the narrow road, as the scripture says to us. And the only thing that is necessary for drifting is a lack of focus on what is true. It is to be unaffected and unconcerned of the message of Christ. To have faith, what it requires of us is to believe, but to drift requires nothing of us. We simply will. Ken Hughes wrote this in his two volumes on Hebrews. He says, a slow drift given enough time will carry you to another continent and its dark, uncharted waters. How many people in faith have we walked through for years? Years and years, and slowly but surely, we saw the drift. They began to isolate a little bit more. They stopped serving in church. They stopped regularly attending. Maybe it was then two times a month, then one time a month, and then later, some years down the line, you haven't seen them before. We've all experienced that. That's drift. But if you could look behind the scenes, what you would see are small compromises at keeping Jesus at the center of our lives, a lack of joy in the scripture, right? And a lack of submission to the lordship of Christ. A lack of focus is all that is necessary in drifting. Now notice the words here of our author. He has a concern that we not not neglect this great salvation. He doesn't say uh, to those who have rejected this message of Jesus, he's writing to the people of faith in that day, and he's telling them not to neglect our great salvation. Why is it great? Because Jesus Christ paid a massive debt on humanity, and he did it as a great individual, a magnanimous person at a great cost to him. The message has come to them, first from the Lord's mouth, then it was attested to them by other people who heard about it, and then God's Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, confirmed it in their heart. It gave them confidence that that message is true. And so the author says to the church in that day, in the midst of their drifting, 
that this is a troubling trend. And he warns us today. He says that how shall we escape? How shall we escape such a salvation? How shall we, if we neglect this, how shall we escape this? And so what he's meaning is he's talked about this message that was given to us by angels that was reliable. He's talking about the Old Testament law that was given to Moses. Now, people knew the law. They knew the consequences for transgressions against the law. It was in their life. But the scriptures had promised them that someday God would come and he would write the law in their hearts that God would come and he would redeem the world. And they know that. And he's saying, how now can you reject a God that so loved the world that he paid your price? It's one thing to reject the law of God. It's another thing to reject his love. It's a completely other thing to reject his love. And how will you escape if you reject the love of God? And so friends, to close, I think these scriptures, they stir my heart. Right? Where am I drifting? And where are my eyes off on this thing? Right? If we put that question back on the board, like what I want most is to be what? What do we fill that blank in with? The only thing that we can fill that blank in with is all that we want to be is his. Simply be his. When you worship him, when you find joy in his heart, your heart from him, when you submit to him and you love him, you get all the things that you could ever want in this world in spades. Now, that's not a promise of prosperity, but the scripture does reveal to us that those who walk wisely with the Lord will prosper. I mean, it makes sense, right? Watch your drifting. And if you're in here today and you feel like you've compromised, you have been drifting for some time. Man, the gospel is true, isn't it? That the grace of God is scandalous. That there is more than enough grace for you to turn and love your Savior again. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the truth of your scripture. Uh, it doesn't let us off. Like your word doesn't. You fight for our hearts every turn. And so, Lord, we thank you for this living word that brings instruction into our life, that implores us to keep our eyes on you, that you are only to be served as the very center of our lives, that there is no one else to be Lord of our lives, and there is no compromises on who you were. And so, Jesus, we thank thank you that you are the Son of God, that you are the Messiah, that you are creator, redeemer, that you died on the cross for our sins, Lord. Thank you that we have a whole relationship with God through you. And Lord, we thank you for the peace and the rest that comes by simply delighting in your word and in your truth. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.